Chapter Nine, Part One, of Vandover and the Brute. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vandover and the Brute, by Frank Norris. Chapter Nine, Part One. Vandover stayed for two weeks at Coronado Beach and managed to pass the time very pleasantly. He was fortunate enough to find a party at the hotel whom he knew very well. In the morning they bathed or sailed on the bay, and in the afternoon rode out with a pack of greyhounds and coursed jackrabbits on the lower end of the island. Vandover's good spirits began to come back to him. His appetite returned. His nerves steadied themselves. He slept eight hours every night. But, for all that, he did not think that things were the same with him. He said to himself that he was a changed man, that he was older, more serious. During this time he received several letters from his father, which he answered very promptly. In the course of their correspondence it was arranged that they should both leave for Europe on the twenty-fifth of that month, and that consequently Vandover should return to the city not later than the fifteenth. Vandover was having such a good time, however, that he stayed over the regular steamer in order to go upon a moonlight picnic down on the beach. The next afternoon he took passage for San Francisco on a second-class boat. This homeward passage turned out to be one long misery for Vandover. He had never been upon a second-class boat before, and had never imagined that anything could be so horribly uncomfortable or disagreeable. The Mazatlan was overcrowded, improperly ballasted, and rolled continually. The table was bad, the accommodations inadequate, the passengers hopelessly uncongenial. Cold and foggy weather accompanied the boat continually. The same endless procession of bleached hills still filed past under the mist, going now in the opposite direction, and the same interminable game of whist was played in the smoking-room, only with greasier second-class cards, amidst the acrid smoke of second-class tobacco. At supper, the first day out, a little Jew, who sat next to Vandover, and who invariably wore a plush skullcap with ear-laps, tried to sell him two flawed and yellow diamonds. The evening after leaving Port Hartford, the Mazatlan ran into dirty weather. It was not stormy, simply rough, disagreeable, the wind and sea directly ahead. Half an hour after supper, Vandover began to be sick. For a long time he sat on the slippery leather cushions in the nasty smoking-room, sucking limes, drinking seltzer, and trying to be interested in the card-games. He dozed a little and awoke, feeling wretched, covered with a cold sweat, racked by a pain in the back of his head, and tortured by an abominable nausea. He groped his way out upon the swaying gusty deck, descended to his cabin, and went to bed. The Mazatlan had booked more passengers than could be accommodated. 
the steward being obliged to make up beds on the floor of the dining saloon, and even upon some of the tables. Vandover had not been able to get a stateroom, and so had put up with a bunk in the common cabin at the stern of the vessel. About two o'clock in the morning, he woke up in this place, frightfully sick at the stomach, and wretched in body and mind. He had an upper bunk, and for a long time he lay on his back rolling about with the rolling of the steamer, vaguely staring straight above him at the roof of the cabin, hardly a hand's breadth above his face. The roof was iron, painted with a white paint very thick and shiny, and was studded with innumerable bolt heads and enormous nuts. By and by, for no particular reason, he rose on his elbow and, leaning over the side of his berth, looked about him. The light streaming from two strong-smelling ship's lanterns showed the cabin, long and narrow. There were two cramped passageways, on either side of which the tiers of bunks, mere open racks filled with bedding, rose to the roof, those occupied by women hung with spotted turkey-red calico. The cabin was two decks below the open air, and every berth was occupied, the only ventilation being through the door. The air was foul with the stench of bilge, the reek of untrimmed lamps, the exhalation of so many breaths, and the close, stale smell of warm bedding. A vague murmur rose in the air, the sound of deep breathing, the moving of restless bodies between the coarse sheets the momentary noise of the scratching of blunt fingertips, a subdued cough, the moan of a sleeping child. All the while the shaft of the screw, seemingly close beneath the floor, pounded and rumbled without a moment's stop. Immediately underneath Vandover, two men, saloon-keepers, awoke and lit their cigars and began a long discussion on the question of license. Two or three bunks distant, a woman, a Salvation Army lassie, one of a large party of Salvationists who were on board, began to cough violently, choking for breath. Across the aisle, the little Jew of the plush skullcap with earlaps snored monotonously in alternate keys, one a guttural bass, the other a rasping treble. The Mazatlan was rolling worse than ever, now up and down, now from side to side, and now with long forward lurches that combined the other two motions. During one of these later, the little Jew was half awakened. He stopped snoring, leaving an abrupt silence in the air. Then Vandover could hear him threshing about uneasily. Still half asleep, he began to mutter and swear. That's it, roll. I would if I were you. Roll, that's right. Here, sir. Ah, keep it all roll, you damned old top, just roll. The continued pitching, the foul air, and the bitter smoke from the saloon-keeper's cigars became more than Vandover could stand. His stomach turned. At every instant he gagged and choked. He suddenly made up his mind that he could stand it no longer, and determined to go on deck preferring to walk the night out rather than spend it in the cabin. He drew on his shoes without lacing them, and dressed himself hurriedly. Omitting his collar and scarf, he put his hat on his tumbled hair, swung into his overcoat, 
and, wrapping his travelling rug around him, started up toward the deck. On the stairs, he was seized with such a nausea that he could hardly keep from vomiting where he stood, but he rushed out upon the lower deck, gaining the rail with a swimming head. He sank back upon an iron capstan with a groan, weak and trembling, his eyes full of tears, a bursting feeling in his head. He was utterly miserable. It was about half-past two in the morning, and the cold, raw wind was whistling through the cordage and flinging the steamer's smoke down upon the decks and upon the water like a great veil of crepe. A sickly half-light was spread out between the sea and the heavens. By its means he could barely distinguish great livid blotches of fog or cloud whirling across the black sky, and the unnumbered multitude of white-topped waves rushing past, plunging and rising like a vast herd of black horses galloping on with shaking white manes. Low in the north-east horizon lay a long pale blur of light, against which the bow of the steamer, inky black, rose and fell and heaved and sank incessantly. To the landward side, and very near at hand, so near that he could hear the surf at their feet, the long procession of hills continually defiled, vague and formless masses between the sea and sky. The wind, the noise of the waves rushing past, the roll of the breakers, and the groaning of the cordage, all blended together and filled the air with a prolonged minor note, lamentable beyond words. The atmosphere was cold and damp, the spray flying like icy bullets. The sombre light that hung over the sea reflected itself in long blurred streaks upon the wet decks and slippery iron rods. Here and there about the rigging, a tremulous ball of orange haze showed where the ship's lanterns were swung. Directly under him, in the stern, the screw snarled incessantly in a vortex of boiling water that forever swelled away and was lost in the darkness. From time to time, the indicator of the patent log, just beside him, rang its tiny bell. Vandover drew his rug about him and went up to the main deck, dragging his shoelaces after him. The wind was stronger here, but he bent his head against it and went on towards the smoking-room, for the idea had occurred to him that he could shut himself in there and pass the rest of the night upon the cushions. Anything was better than returning to the cabin downstairs. The deck was jerked away from beneath his feet, and he was hurled forward, many times his own length, against a companionway, breaking his thumb as he fell. A second shock threw him down again as he rose. Everything about him shook and danced like glassware upon a jarred table. Then the whole ship rose under his feet as no wave had ever lifted it, and fell again, not into yielding water, but upon something that drove through its sides as if there had been paper. A deafening, crushing noise split the mournful howl of the wind, and far underneath him, Vandover heard a rapid series of blows, a dreadful rumbling and pounding that thrilled and quivered through all the vessel's framework up to her very mast tips. On all fours upon the deck, holding to a cleat with one hand, he braced himself, watching and listening, his senses all alive, 
his muscles tense. In the direction of the engine room, he heard the furious ringing of a bell. The screw stopped. The Mazatlan wallowed helplessly in the trough of the sea. The End of Chapter 9 Part 2